presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. All right, we are, uh, we come closer and closer to the end of our study. We're on our ninth session today in our study of Better Than I Deserve, a second look at the grace of God. And I've entitled today's session Between the New Birth and the Last Breath, which uh, does not sound like an exciting kind of thing, but basically uh, what we're going to be talking about today is the subject of sanctification. That's one of those uh, words that we look at and we say, oh my, we're about to get into some deep water here, but we're really not. Uh, sanctification is an extremely important subject, and so we're going to be talking about that. Uh, just by way of review, remember uh, that what, uh, what happened is that, uh, that God created uh, the man and the woman, uh, created them perfectly in every way, uh, and then, of course, we see that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall into sin. And what happens is that the, uh, that the human race becomes totally depraved. Now, that doesn't, and as we've said, and, you know, repetition is the mother of learning. We're not sure who the dad is, but we know who the mother is. Uh, Human beings became totally depraved. That does not mean we're as bad as we could be. We can always be worse. But it does mean that every part of the human personality is touched or tainted in some way by sin. Uh, and because of that, uh, God had already gone to extraordinary lengths, as we shall see, uh, to, to deal with, uh, with human sin. Uh, notice in your notes there in that left-hand column, uh, under uh, Roman numeral 1, part B, uh, the section about God's uh, efforts of or work of reclaiming His own. Uh, notice, first of all, that, that the fact that God brings us to Himself is not an afterthought. That God had planned this uh, before He ever put the first star in, <clears throat> into space and before this, uh, the man and the woman even sinned. Notice the passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved. How? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. It's not that God just chose us to be saved, but He, used, he also determined the means by which we would be saved, and that's through the proclamation of the gospel and the inward witness of the Spirit of God. We see that prefigured in the Garden of Eden because after the man and the woman fall, remember they cover themselves with vegetation because of their shame. Do they go looking for God? No, they do not. They don't go looking for God. They say, oh God, we messed up. Oh, please have mercy on them. They don't do that at all. They hide from God. They run away from God. God seeks them out. The good shepherd always finds his sheep. Uh, we see in Genesis, uh, there in Genesis 3, that God comes looking for them. And uh, 
the vegetation with which they have covered themselves, their own efforts, are insufficient for God. So what he does is he slays an animal and he takes the animal skins and clothes the man and the woman in animal skins. It's a picture of ultimately what would happen millennia later when Christ would die on the cross. Uh, for at least for a number of years later, once uh, God gives the, uh, the ten words, the ten commandments, and the pattern for the tabernacle uh, to Moses, remember there would be animal sacrifices that would go on. But the book of Hebrews tells us that those sacrifices could never take away sin. In fact, they were simply a reminder of what sinners that we are. But they, they prefigured, they looked forward to the time that the perfect substitute would come. And that substitute was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in the passage there from Romans chapter 5, verses 18, uh, uh, 18 and 19, where Paul talks about that, and he says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. Whose trespass was that? That was Adam's. So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For justice through the disobedience of the one man, that is Adam, the many were made sinners. That is all who were in Adam. That would be all of the human race. So also through the obedience of the one man, that's Jesus, the many, that is, that's those who are in Christ, will be made righteous. And what we've seen over the last few weeks is remember what God did was, uh, was through, the, through the cross. Here, here's, uh, here's God. God is a holy, righteous God. And because of His holiness and His righteousness, God's ready to pour out His wrath. We've seen that at times. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen it in the great flood where God just pours out His wrath, wipes out everything on the face of the earth with the exception of Noah and his family. And so God's wrath is building up all of this time. And so what does God do? This passage is telling us that God interposed His Son, the Lord Jesus, and the wrath that was due to us was poured out on Christ and all the righteousness that He is is imputed to the believing sinner. And I don't need to go into a lot of detail because we've spent a number of weeks talking about that. So the, the price is paid for sin at the sacrifice of Christ. Of course, that was 2,000 years ago. So how does God make that applicable in our lives today? And that brings us to the irresistible call of the Spirit. Uh, notice uh, Jesus' remarks in John chapter 6, verse 65. says, Jesus went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. What does the word enable mean? To help, to make it possible to, to, uh, to get one, someone to do something. Uh, so the idea is, uh, why is it that we needed enabling to, to be able to come to Christ? Because we're totally depraved. Our minds uh, are hostile toward God, the Bible says. Um, our, our, we don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. 
And because of that, uh, our tendency is away from God. See, one of the things that a lot of people talk about today is, um, is the will. And you hear a lot of talk about free will. In fact, there are some churches who bear that name. Technically, the will is not free. It's, it's like the will is some sort of something that's just kind of dangling out here, and it can kind of do whatever it chooses to do. But if you think about it, just from a logical standpoint, the will is not free. The will is inextricably linked to at least two things. It's linked to our reason, and it's linked to our emotions. Why do we choose to do certain things? Why do we make any of the choices that we do? Are they just arbitrary choices? You know, uh, I'm standing there at the checkout at the Spectrum store, and if I were of a mind to look for some sort of, buy a chocolate bar, uh, you know, they've got a Snickers, and they've got a Three Musketeers, and what's your favorite brand? Hershey's, all right, and they got a Hershey bar there. So you got all three. So why do I choose the Hershey bar? Or why do I choose the Snickers? Well, it's got, it's got to do with the way I feel about Snickers, and it's got to do with the way I think about Snickers, and my thinking is based on my past experiences. So see, the will is not really free in the final analysis. The will makes its choices based on the way we think about things and the way we feel about things. Uh, so, if it's true, and it is, that our minds, before we come to know Christ, are hostile toward God, that we don't understand the things of the Spirit of God, and somebody says, you know, well, what you need to do is you need to exert your will and choose Christ, why would I? After all, I'm hostile toward God. Why would I ever choose Christ? How do you feel about God? I'm hostile toward God. What does the word hostile mean? Angry, hatred. It includes all of those things. You know, why would I choose in favor of someone I hate? That's the reason that the primary, the, the first thing that God does when he invades our life, just as in the case of Saul of Tarsus, is he regenerates us. He brings us to life. Why does he have to do that? Why does God have to bring, our, bring us to life? Because we're dead in trespasses and sins. How much response do you get from a dead person? Yeah, you go out here to Striffler Hamby or one of the other mortuaries and stand out there over some coffin with some guy that's stretched out there and you talk to him until you're blue in the face and how much response will you get? You get nada. You get nothing. Because his primary need, or her primary need, is life. Well, that's what God does. First of all, he invades our life. He gives us life. And when he does, he also gives us faith and repentance and the ability to repent. Uh, those are gifts that God gives us. We express this faith in Christ. We repent, that is, what does the word repent mean? The word repent means to change your mind. See, all of a sudden, our minds have been hostile toward God. After He regenerates us, our minds change, and we're no longer hostile toward God. 
we're affectionate toward God. We're moved toward God. And we cry out, oh God, have mercy on me. And what does he do? Just that. He has mercy on us. So, uh, what God has done is he has interposed his son for his people and he has borne away all of our sin and, uh, and has taken that to himself and he has imputed or accounted or credited to us believers all of the perfect righteousness of Christ. So when he sees us, when God the Father sees us, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see us clothed in our own righteousness. Remember, that's one of the things Paul wrote about in Galatians. He said, not interested in having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law, that is from doing the things that are right, but a righteousness that is derived through faith in Christ. That's what he's talking about there. Now, between what happens, all right, so God saves us and he makes new creations out of us. He makes, uh, he makes brand new creations out of us. The Bible says uh, that the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And so what happens is this process of sanctification really begins in earnest. Now, the pro sanctification simply means to set apart from and to set apart to, um, to consecrate. I love this uh, quotation by Anthony Hukuma who uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he used to be the uh, professor of theology at, at, uh, at Calvin College. Uh, if you ever want to read a great book on, uh, on soteriology, on, on salvation, read this book, uh, Saved by Grace. It is, it just, it's, an, it's a relatively easy read, and it is so well written. I think you'd probably like it, some of you. But notice, uh, you j just follow along as I, as I read this quotation from Hukuma. He says that uh, he's defining what sanctification is. He says that gracious, gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which He, God, delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God, and enables us, there's that word enable again, and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to Him. So, what, uh, what do we see in sanctification? All right. God is going to change us. In fact, God's ultimate goal always is the same, and that is His own glory. But one of the means that God has to achieving glory for Himself is changing us and changing us into whose image? That's right, His own image, the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are. We are born again at this point. And then uh, one of these days we're going we're gonna to reach this point where, uh, where, they, where they put us away. So what happens between here and here? That's the subject for today. In fact, that's the title of our... Between the new birth and the last breath. Uh, what we see is the work of God in sanctifying us, setting us apart to Himself, setting us apart from our old way of life. That's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, remember that uh, the Bible talks about justification, sanctification, 
and glorification. In justification, we are saved from the penalty of sin. God declares us righteous. He declares us acquitted. Is that because we're not sinners? No, that's not, not it at all. It's be, why, why can God declare us acquitted of our sins? Because Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. Justification, we are free from the penalty of our sins. We'll never have to face that again. God does not come up and say, Ah, oh, Bradshaw, you remember you did so and so and so and so. No, it says He separates us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. He says, I will forgive you your sins and your iniquities, and I will remember them when? No more. No more. He frees us from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, He frees us from the power, or as Hukuma says here, the pollution of sin. That's, a, that's sort of an ongoing process. Most of the time, that's the way we think about it. It's something progressive, although there are other ways to think about it as well. Uh, in one of these days, when, they, when our remains are laid away, and the, the spirit within us that has been redeemed goes to be with the Lord, and then the resurrection occurs, uh, and our resurrected bodies are united with our made alive, resurrected spirits, then we will be free not only from the penalty of sin, and not only from the power and pollution of sin, but we will also be free from the presence of sin. But that won't be in this life. So don't hold your breath for that one. Uh, that, uh, that certainly comes later. Now, if you look in your notes, there are three tenses of sanctification. Most of the time when we think about sanctification, uh, we think in terms of the middle one, uh, the progressive or present type. But notice the three passages there in the right-hand column of your notes. Uh, the first passage there from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 this is from the New American Standard Version. And uh, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, Then he said, Behold, and he's, he's quoting uh, the Messiah. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that is the first covenant, in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified. Notice, that's past tense. It's a completed act. We have been sanctified through, through what? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Then look at the last passage there at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, also from the New American Standard, where Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, set you apart entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame, when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he's talking about a future kind of event. But then look at the passage that's right in the middle. From 2 Corinthians 3.18, and this is from the NIV, the New International Version. And we, believers, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed. What, what, is, what, what, is, what is the verb form that's used there? are being transformed. What is that? 
Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's present tense. It's an ongoing process. Um, and the word there for transform, and I think we've talked about this before, is the word from which we derive our English word metamorphosis. Uh, morph has to do with form. There's a lot of, you can do a lot of things on a computer now. It's called morphing, where you change the form. Uh, our form is changing. We're like, uh, you know, the Lord saves us. And we're like, the, uh, we're like the little creature that's climbing up the limb out there on the tree. But eventually, uh, we find ourselves in a pupon. We find ourselves wiggling around, and then it splits open, and what emerges? A butterfly. Now, it's interesting. I don't know whether I've shared this with you before or not. But uh, have any of you ever watched uh, one of the, a little pupa open up, watch the butterfly wiggle and struggle to get, get out of there? The struggle is really important. Uh, there have been some experiments done. One, one, one little science group uh, took little X-Acto knives, and when they, when they saw the thing starting to wiggle, they'd take a knife and very carefully, not so they would injure the little critter inside, but slit it open so the little critter could get on out without all of the struggle. And what they discovered is that the, the wings of the butterfly or the moth or whatever it is never developed. And it just, uh, you know, it lived a very short, well, short life anyway, but a very miserable existence. Part of the struggle in trying to get out what happens to the moth or to the butterfly is it causes the internal juices of that little insect to be pumped out into the wings so that the wings are strong and by the time it emerges, it's ready to fly. Well, a lot of what's involved in the process of sanctification is just that. It has to do with conflict. It has to do with struggle. And those are things that you and I aren't real excited about most of the time. You know, we're, uh, we're real interested in the ultimate product. That is, yes, Lord, I want to be like Jesus. And I look forward to the day that I perfectly reflect the Lord Jesus in my life. Now, incidentally, once more, that will not be in this lifetime. That will be when we are with him. But what is it that causes us to change more and more and more and more into his image? And a lot of it has to do with this whole issue of conflict and struggle. And that's what we're, uh, that's what we're going to, to be looking at right here. Remember that sanctification is a, is a work of God, and it's all of the Godhead is involved. This is on page two of your notes. Uh, notice the passage there from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. You see God the Father involved. He says, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good to what end? Why would God do that? What does it say? That we may share in His holiness. And remember, the word holiness is exactly the same word that's translated sanctification. They mean the same thing, to be set apart to, to be set apart from. Remember in the Old Testament, uh, there was a mobile worship center called the Tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, they had all kinds of pots and pans. And I mean, after all, they were collecting blood all the time to sprinkle, and there were portions of meat that they would do different things with. 
But those old, and can you imagine what those utensils would look like over time? I mean, they were used every day. So what do pots and pans start looking like after they've been used for a while? Not too good. They get all beat up, scratched up, banged up, and, uh, and yet they were called holy vessels. Holy vessels. Now, why were they holy vessels? It's because they were set apart for a specific use. In other words, you couldn't, if you needed to cook supper that night and you discovered that all your dishes were still in the dishwasher back in the tent and you just didn't have a clean dish in the house, a clean pot or a pan, you couldn't go to the priest and say, look, y'all not going to be doing sacrifices till about tomorrow morning sometime. Could I borrow one of your pots to cook my beans in? Couldn't do that. Why? Well, it's not, it wasn't because it wasn't a useful pot. It was that that pot was set aside for a specific purpose and you didn't use it for anything else. And see, that's what, that's what God is telling us here through this passage in Hebrews is that when God disciplines us, and that word discipline means child train. He says he disciplines us for our good. It reminds me of what my mother used to say when she would get the belt out. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I never believed that incidentally but it was it was for my good it was it was for my training ultimately in terms of what god says here is that we may share in his holiness that is that we may you know we real we more and more realize what our purpose is is in being set aside for him so the father clearly is involved in our sanctification so is the son notice the passage from ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 and following says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but what? But holy and blameless. See, the Son is also involved. Incidentally, I'll tell you, this is a little aside. This will not be on the exam, so you don't have to make notes on this. But uh, I, had a, and I do a good bit of counseling, and I had, uh, I had someone tell me one time, said, it came in and said, Brad, oh, you know, I think my problem is I, love, I just love my wife too much. He said, you know, I just, I'm crazy about the woman, and I just, it just makes me wonder if, if, you know, I'm kind of putting God in second place and I'm just loving my wife too much. I said, well, do you think that you love your wife as much as Christ loves the church? He said, oh, no, there's no way I could possibly love her that much. I said, well, your problem is not that you love her too much. Your problem is that you don't love her enough. Because that's what the scriptures tell us, is love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. So, but he's, he's involved in our sanctification. Notice also the Spirit is as well. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Now again, the point I'm making is that in our sanctification that every member of the Godhead is involved in that. Now, guess who else is supposed to be involved in it? We are. That's right. Remember our definition? And I go on to, to make a note of that there in your notes under Part B where it says the, 
We're talking about the believer's responsible, active participation in sanctification. You and I, are at least one of the things we ought to be doing is reading the Scriptures and studying the Scriptures, meditating on the Scriptures, believing what the Scriptures say, obeying what the Scriptures tell us to do. Why should we do that? Well, in John 17, Jesus says, as he is there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the cross is just hours before him. He's making his last, uh, his last real prayer to the Father before he goes to the cross, and he prays for his disciples and by extension for all of his people, and he says, sanctify them, make them holy, separate them to yourself, Lord. Sanctify them how? By the truth. Well, Pilate said, truth? What's truth? Well, he tells us here. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. See, we need to be students of the Scripture. As we read the Scriptures, God reveals His plan for our life. Now, does that mean God tells us whether we ought to buy a Volkswagen or a Volvo? You won't find that verse. But God not only provides us specific directions about some things, about we ought not to be chasing our secretary, unless our secretary happens to be our mate. But he does provide certain principles, uh, economic principles, about how we ought to utilize our money, and that will give us an idea as to whether or not we ought to buy a Volkswagen or a Volvo. Notice also, we ought to be walking in the Spirit, and that has to do with an, an awareness and obedience to the leading of the Spirit. Notice the passage from Galatians 5, uh, again from the New American Standard, where Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. What does that statement say? What does it say about what's going on inside of us as believers? Conflict, struggle. Why? Well, uh, you know, when God when God saved me, let's see, I was must have been in my late twenties or early thirties when God saved me. Well, can you imagine by the time we get get at that point, how many habits we've already developed, how many sinful strategies that we have for dealing with life, and then God invades our life. He changes us. And all of a sudden, we're supposed to start doing things a different way. Well, that feels funny. It feels strange. Yes, I, I want to do that because I want to be obedient to the Lord. And I want to do the right thing. But I'm used to doing it this way. And if I can just kind of keep God out of my hair, I can make this thing work. But see, God loves us way too much to do that. It's, I used to tell my students in... Uh, and at Troy State, where I taught for several years, I said, okay, just, just fold your hands for a minute. And they, they all dutifully fold their hands. And I said, okay, now look down and say, which, which thumb's on top? And, you know, well, in my case, it's the left thumb that's on top. I said, now take your hands apart and just kind of wiggle them around and put your hands back together and do it again and look down. I said, where's your thumb? Well, left thumb's on top again. I said, see... We, that's when we fold our hands, the left thumb, my left thumb's always on top. I say, okay, now do this. Uh, on purpose, put your right thumb on top. Fold your hands that way. I said, how does that feel? And everybody, guess what everybody said? It, feel, it feels weird, feels strange. See, it's a change. 
And sometimes we are sort of repulsed by change. It's, it's one of the reasons that uh, in the course of talking with people, one of the things that I discover is that women very often who have been in abusive relationships with a man will, uh, something happens, a divorce occurs, or somebody finally shoots the guy, or the guy goes to prison, and you know there's a subsequent divorce or whatever it is, but this lady's free again. More often than not, guess what kind of relationship she will get involved in again? Exactly the same kind of abusive relationship. Well, now, why is that? People puzzle over that all the time. But if you think about it, it's almost self-evident. What happens is over a period of time in an abusive relationship, is, is that a pleasant experience? Absolutely not. It's an awful, it's an awful experience. And yet what happens is that people develop coping skills. They know what to expect. They know when it happens. They know about how long it's going to last. And they know about how long it's going to take to get over it. And they know about how long it may be before it occurs again. And they develop all of these skills so that they can get along with it. So, you know, these, these folks finally go their own ways. And then this guy comes riding up on his white horse. And I mean, he's just, he, he's just everything a woman could ever want. Just wants to treat this lady like a queen. But she's going to turn him down. And she's going to go to another person just like the first one. And the reason is her coping skills do not match this new situation. As great as it would be to be taken care of and to be looked after and have a wonderful relationship, she doesn't have the skills to deal with that. So she gets in this relationship, and as awful as it can be at times, there's a comfort factor that's involved because I know what to expect, and when it does happen, I know how to deal with it because I've been there. You say, that sounds sick to me. Well, I'm not sure I'd call it sick, but, but clearly it's a sinful kind of response. But it's, a, it's the same thing that you and I do in our relationship with the Lord. We've developed these strategies for dealing with life. And it's just easier sometimes to do it that way than it is to do it the way that the Lord would have us to, to do it. Notice what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 7 and 8. This is from the New American Standard. Uh, I'm not going to take time to read it all, but I do want to uh, read part of it. Uh, verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, that is, in this old human nature of mine, this, 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 this nature of mine that wants to have its own way, he said, there's nothing good that dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present. See, he's a believer. I want to do the right thing. But the doing of the good is not for the good that I want. I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Notice verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. You ever feel that way? Wretched. Oh, golly, I'm just, we just feel torn in directions. That's what he's saying. Wretched man that I am. 
who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, he wasn't looking for information. This is a rhetorical question. Thanks be to God. Who's going to set him free? Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. He's talking about the conflict, the struggle that's going on. But notice he doesn't stop there. Notice verse 1 of chapter 8. See, the tendency is to say, man, with this struggle going on, I, just, I guess what I ought to do is just give up. Just lose heart. It's just hopeless. But he reminds us in verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though the struggle's going on, does the struggle surprise God? No, it doesn't surprise Him at all. Think about Joseph of the Old Testament. Here's a guy who spends 13 years in prison. Uh, you know, he had just been a pesky 17-year-old and sold into, uh, sold into slavery by his own brothers. Why? What's going on in this process? Well, the psalmist tells us that, that, uh, that God was working in his life, making him the kind of person that he was supposed to be, building things into his life. In fact, when you get to the 11th year of Joseph's imprisonment, uh, a guy who had the ear of the Pharaoh shows up in prison. And Joseph, I am convinced, is, is sure this is his way out. But for two more years, he's still in prison. Even though there's a person right there in spitting distance of Pharaoh who can tell Pharaoh the truth, and Pharaoh, all he has to do is say one word, and Joseph will be free. But that is not the way it happened. But what happened during those 13 years, those 13 years of struggle, where Joseph tried to do the right thing? Remember Mrs. Potiphar made moves on him, wanted to get him in the rack, and, uh, and he, he ran away, left his toga in her hand. And the result of doing right then was what? He went to prison. Instead of being a chief trustee in a house, he wound up being a chief trustee in a jail situation. But what happened in all of that? God taught Joseph some things. He taught him domestic responsibilities at Potiphar's house. He taught him institutional responsibilities at, uh, in the prison so that Joseph would be ready for the national and international responsibilities that he would face. And Joseph learned to trust God. And Joseph learned what it meant to forgive those who had hurt you. But it was 13 years of that struggle. God was sanctifying him. God was making him into the person that he intended Joseph to be. Think about, uh, it, they're not all happy stories. Uh, remember Jonah? <laughs> Jonah's one of my favorite prophets. He's uh, called by God to go and preach to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were Israel's sworn enemy. They all hated each other. And Jonah knew that if he went and preached to the Ninevites, that he knew God so well that he knew God was going to have mercy on these folks. That's the reason he wanted Jonah to go preach to them. And so what does Jonah do? Instead of heading 500 miles northeast, Jonah heads 2,000 miles due west, tries to get to the Portugal, Tarshish. And of course, we know what happens out there on the Mediterranean. You remember that interesting undersea adventure that Jonah had? And when Jonah is finally vomited up and comes out in a pool of whale vomit, 
there on the shoreline, I'm sure that his first question was, oh, can anybody point me in the direction of Nineveh? He's ready to do what God called him to do. But once he got there and preached, he's still reluctant. His heart was still not in touch with God's heart. And he preached, and guess what happened? Just what Jonah feared, I mean from the king right on down. There was repentance just, just citywide and in all the environs. Just tremendous repentance. And it was a perfect opportunity for Jonah to do great follow-up work and come in there and tell these folks about the true God. But what does Jonah wind up doing? Sitting up on a hill here, complaining. And when God showed him a little attention, he thought, well, maybe God's going to nuke him after all. But when the story of Jonah closes, what is God doing? God is talking with Jonah. He's patient with Jonah. He's gentle with Jonah, counseling him, seeking to bring Jonah to the right kind of thinking. See, God doesn't give up on us. And he doesn't intend for us to give up. He continues for us to continue in the struggle and for our lives to change and be more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. How about old Naomi? Remember Naomi lived in Moab. Husband died. Then her two boys died. Then one of her daughters-in-law left her. And she winds up finally going back to her homeland of Israel. And... Uh, Having done that, it's, it still looks really grim. Ruth goes back with her. And it looks like it's, things, are, things are just never getting better. In fact, Naomi refers to herself as bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. I'm filled with bitterness. And it looked like everything was just kept going downhill until the day that Ruth was out in a field gleaning and it happened to be the field of Boaz. And we know the rest of the story that Boaz married Ruth. And as a result of that, Jesse came along and David and ultimately the baby Jesus through that line. See, God's at work. But as we, as we go along through life, it, it doesn't mean we're not going to face conflict. It doesn't mean we're not going to face struggle. That's, that's part of it. Well, look at the, uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I'll point you to the summary and conclusion there. Uh, the 35th question in the Westminster Shorter Cat is, what is sanctification? And notice the response. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. Sounds a little like Hukuma's uh, definition. Or, and are enabled via the Holy Spirit and via the Scriptures, enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Notice, enabled more and more. It's a gradual process. And does it happen all at once? No, it takes place over time. Isn't it interesting that in this process of sanctification through which God clearly takes us, that God never gets in a hurry? He didn't get in a hurry with Jonah or Joseph. He doesn't get in a hurry with us. And because he doesn't get in a hurry, you and I have an opportunity to learn something that we don't really care about learning. And that is one of the virtues that comes out of 
Sanctification is patience. You ever pray for patience? Probably don't anymore. You know, you've run into every traffic light and everything that can go wrong that will delay you will go wrong. You say, oh God, what's the matter? And you say, well, you prayed for patience and there's only one way to get it, and that's by waiting. And that's what he's talking about here. Sanctification occurs in the face of contrary urgings from the believer sinners, the believing sinners' old habits and dependencies. That is our flesh. And they're going to continue throughout our lifetime. But we can have victory as we trust in the Lord and as we seek to be led by the Spirit and as we spend time in the Scriptures. Remember, I, did, I forgot to put this in your notes. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And with it, He will make the way of escape. See, God will see us safely through. And He tells us to run the race that's set before us. I can't run the race that's set before Susan or before Bob. Well, the only race I can run is the one that's set before me. And if I start looking around at Susan's race or at Martha's race, I might say, hey, they got it easier than I do today. And I might start getting bitter. Or I might say, hey, I got it made today. But the truth is, is the only race that we can run is the race that is set before us today. May God help us to see that. And may God help us to realize that as we run that race, it's His faithfulness that sustains us and brings us through. It's sure a lot better than we deserve, isn't it? You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.